Welcome to the Crosslands Church Podcast, our mission to help you experience the life with God you've been missing. And now, a message for you. One of the earliest memories I have is um, I was about four or five years old, and we were living in a little townhouse in Scarborough, and we had a particularly cold winter. And I remember when my parents put a brick on the toilet seat. And every time you need to go to the bathroom, you had to lug that thing. And it was very heavy for a four, and five, four or five-year-old. And, and the reason why there was a brick on the toilet seat was because it had been so cold. One day, one of my parents opened the toilet, and a rat had come up through the sewers into the toilet. Which, I mean, as a young kid, you know, what does that matter? When you think back, it's kind of horrifying. It's not the first time that kind of thing has happened. In um, 1902, other side of the world, there, there was... Um, there's a colony of France called Indochina. Today it's called Vietnam. They've gained their independence. And um, there was a governor who had come to the city of Hanoi, which is the center of the administration for this colony in, in 1897. And he wanted to make Hanoi the, uh, the, the modern center of Southeast Asia. He wanted to do everything he could to modernize it. And one of the first things he did, did was, was try to install indoor plumbing throughout the city. And it was a fairly simple system, and it was so simple, maybe a little too simple, that rats started breeding in the drainage pipes. And it became such a problem, they said, we have to get rid of the rats, and so they would hire hunters to kill the rats. In one month of June, they killed over 20,000 rats, and it was still a problem. So what they did is they figured they'd be creative, and they started offering a bounty for people who would kill rats. Now, they didn't want a whole pile of dead rats showing up at City Hall, so they would pay the bounty for every rat's tail. And the rats kept on coming, and they started paying out the bounties. And, and one of the officials, the government, was, was sort of wandering through town one day, and he, he was sort of wandering through the outskirts. Now, today, the outskirts would be the suburbs, the nice areas, back then the suburbs were the not so nice areas, and he discovered that in the, in the outskirts of the city, where sort of shady dealings went on, people were breeding rats because they could sell them for money. It's not the first time, or it's not the only time that's happened, the same thing happened somewhere in India with cobras. Try to solve a problem, you implement a solution, and the solution makes the problem worse. And that happens when you, when you set a goal and your mechanism to achieve the goal becomes somewhat off. Well, I see this at, at Crossland's Church because our goal is to make disciples and, and we have very it's very difficult to measure that. So sometimes we, one of the measures we have, which is a secondary measure, is church attendance. I mean, COVID has really messed all that up. But if you start measuring church attendance and forget that discipleship is the intent then you can start doing all things, all kinds of things to increase attendance that have nothing to do with discipleship. That's where it gets tricky. We're in uh, our series on justice, sort of coming towards the end of it. Second last message today. And um, we have seen justice gaps in the world, justice gaps in the culture. And, and at some point, they're never going to be completely resolved until Jesus returns and implements his ultimate solution. But, but what has happened in our culture, as gaps have been recognized, we have, we've set targets of measurement. There are three big ones these days. Three big ones, they are um, diversity, inclusion, and equality or equity. 
And so what happens is that, well, this is where the problem lies. Those are secondary means of, just, uh, of justice, secondary measurements. But what happens when you, when, you, when you put these measurements in place, you can aim for the measure without actually implementing justice. What does that look like? In fact, we see strong responses for that whole thing, diversity, inclusion, equity, and we see strong reactions against. And at some point you might go, well, why would you react against that? Aren't these good things? Well, because the perception of some people is that aiming for those goals straight on can actually increase injustice. In 1969, um, in North America, two black men came out publicly and accused classical, the classical music industry of racism. Because the accusation was that all of our symphonies were primarily dominated by white males. In fact, the same accusation was made about gender bias. And so what they did is they implemented a solution, which is a brilliant solution. They started doing blind auditions. So if somebody's auditioning for an orchestra, they would audition behind a screen, so the person evaluating them didn't, couldn't tell what they looked like. Couldn't tell if they were black, white, whatever, male, female. And so the, the, the audition was based specifically on their skill, which makes sense, right? Not too long ago, some months ago, the New York Times published an article that orchestras were going to be removing the screens and no longer doing blind auditions because the results weren't there. Our orchestras are not diverse enough. Is that a legitimate solution? There's also the, the claim, the, the response people have against this whole thing that there's a sense that it's not enough to do nothing. When there's injustice in the world, it's not enough to not do injustice. You have to participate in justice. And some people have a problem with that. I'm not doing anything wrong, so why should I be expected to do more than I would normally do? Now, the claim we've made throughout this message series is that Jesus has a better mechanism, better tools for justice than our world does. And I want to evaluate that specific claim and how it should work out in our world today. How does that happen? Um, if you have a comment or question relevant to the message today, I would invite you to put it on the YouTube chat. If you have my number, you can text me directly. If we have time at the end, we will try to entertain questions. But is, this can be a very divisive subject, and, and um, I'm only gonna make it worse as we go. So when we started the series, I talked about the, the definition of justice. There's, there's a Hebrew word for justice. The Hebrew is mishpat. It doesn't matter. We, we're not learning Hebrew here. But the, the concept there is that everybody is treated equitably. The, the or, original context of that was uh, in, the, in a court of law. You cannot treat people differently according to their status or whatever other factor. People need to be treated equally. And I mentioned, I think, in the second or third week that when it comes to justice, in the Old Testament, the word justice many times was not on its own. The word justice is paired with another word, which is righteousness. And righteousness is something that I think is really misunderstood. Bill and Ted made it mean really, really cool. But many times when we understand or we hear the word righteous in, this, in today's culture, when it's taken seriously, we understand it to mean almost something negative. Somebody who's morally pure. 
uh, there's a story of a, there was an elderly woman and um, she was attending a local church. And every time the pastor, who was a younger guy, every time the pastor would preach, after the message, after the service, she would come up to him and say, that was a pastor, that was a fabulous message this morning. They really needed to hear that. Week after week, that was an amazing message. They needed to hear that. And it really started to bother him because at some point he realized this is never hitting her. It's only her in her self-righteousness sort of critiquing other people. So one day there was a really bad snowstorm and the snow piled up and, and the roads were impassable and he showed up to church and only one person showed up that Sunday and it was his elderly lady. So he thought, you know what, here's my chance. So he whipped out the best message he could and he preached about pride and self-righteousness. And he gave it all the barrels. And, and when he was done, the woman came up to him and said, Pastor, that was, that was a wonderful message this morning. If they had all been here, they would have needed that. <laughs> so we have this sense that, that righteousness is being moral, morally pure or maybe, maybe correct. And when you look at, okay, the Hebrew, again, we're not learning Hebrew, but uh, the Hebrew, Hebrew word for, for righteous or righteousness, or I think righteous is tzedek, um, no test on that, um, but it actually means to, to be right, not correct, but to live rightly. One uh, scholar when he was doing his translation of the Old Testament, instead of, instead of translating justice and righteousness is what you see over and over and over in most of our translation, he would say justice and right. When you live right. And in, in the Old Testament, the, the way right living is done is explicitly in taking care of those people that need extra care. To live rightly is to be obligated towards the poor, the disenfranchised. Justice and righteousness, justice and right. How do we do that? Taking care of those that need extra care. If, if you are a practicing Jew today, um, there's an expectation to do good deeds. And in contrast to, we have the same expectation in Christianity, but in Christianity, it, what, what's happened in, in the Western world is we see taking care of other people as motivated by feelings towards them feelings of compassion or whatever. Not so in Judaism. In Judaism, it's an obligation. You don't do this because you feel like it. You do this because you have to. This is what's expected. And so what's happened is that, um, that we've taken that righteousness thing and it sort of steered us the wrong way. And what, what you see in the Old Testament over and over and over, you see justice and righteousness or justice and right paired over and over and over. And it's describing, it's not quite describing the same thing. These words are mutually defining. So what that, hap what that means is, is God's vision of justice is tied to doing right. And God's vision of doing right is tied to justice. You can't separate them. They belong together. Goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, God establishes a covenant an agreement with Abraham and says, I want to bless the world. We need to fix the world's problem. And you're my, you are the person because you've responded to me in, in trust. And we have an agreement that through you and your descendants, I will make all things right. And uh, Genesis 18, 18 to 19 says this. God speaking, he says, Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. 
I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. By doing what is right and just. In, in, I really like what um, the New Living Translation, which is our go-to translation here, has done with that. Um, because other translations would say justice and righteousness. And we default to the sense of moral purity. By doing what is right and just, then I will do for Abram all that I have promised. That's the, early the earliest reference in the Bible to this. From the very beginning, I want to implement my plan to make the world right. And it will happen by doing what is just and doing what is right. When... Um, when God has his chosen king, who becomes the paradigm for all the kings, David gets chosen king. David becomes the paradigm and the, the, the measure for all the following kings in the monarchy. He also sets the expectation for what the Messiah will do. And in 2 Samuel 8.15, it says, So David reigned over all Israel and did what was just and right for all of his people. Both justice and doing right, taking care of those that need extra care. When you read after, the, after, the, the, um, after David becomes king, and there's a whole line of kings, and they're always compared to him. They're always compared to David as a standard. Did they do what he did? Were they, did they do what was just and right? And most times, they didn't. And then after the, all the history in the Old Testament, you have all the, the prophets stacked up at the end. And, and in the prophets, you'd see this phrase over and over and over and over again, because the prophets were critiquing God's people for not living up to the ideal. There was an ideal that was established. And they're critiqued over and over and over. You are not doing what is just and right. In fact, they had two main issues they would address over and over and over and over again. Sometimes you read the prophets. You know, you, you get to um, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and they're all the prophets start. And, and you read them, and it kind of sounds repetitive because they're saying the same things over and over. Stop worshiping idols. Stop betraying your agreement with God. Stop being unfaithful to him. Stop replacing the true God with false gods. That's the first critique. And the second critique is stop doing injustice. Stop doing what's wrong. Stop oppressing the poor. You see it, you can't read the prophets without seeing this over and over again. Over again. The critique is you were supposed to do what is just. You're supposed to do what is right. Why? Why? Because that's who God is. God's people are supposed to reflect his character by doing what is just and doing what is right. Here's where it gets a little challenging. So Tim Keller is an author, former pastor, somewhat of a scholar, and he outlines a whole bunch of characteristics about what a just community in the Old Testament was expected to be. What God's people were expected to be. And I think he had about eight or nine. I picked out five. And depending on where you, where you lean, whether politically or personality, whatever, you might have a hard time with some of these. Some of them you go, yeah, that's right on. Yeah, I believe that. And other ones you go, ah, I don't know about that. Here's five of them. First one, community. God's justice and righteousness is expressed in community, which means that other people have a claim on my wealth. Well, that's communism. In the Bible, the expectation was that we live in community, and if I am wealthy and somebody else is not, I have an obligation to help them. Second thing is that everybody is expected to be treated with equity, tre treated equally. Um, we have to be careful with the word equity because the definition is changing in our culture today. 
I think that's all I'll say about that. But everybody should be treated equally and everybody should be treated with dignity. I don't think anybody would have a problem with that. Here's a third one. You might have a problem with this one. Corporate responsibility. What this says is that I am sometimes responsible for or involved in other people's sins. Wow. Some people really like that idea. Other people really don't. And the next one is individual responsibility. I am finally responsible for all my sins but not necessarily all my outcomes. We don't generate all of our own success. We don't generate all of our own failures. And that's where some of the other people go, well, I didn't like the last one, but I like this one. And the people that like the last one maybe don't like this one as much. But they're both included in God's expectation. And then the, the last one I'll mention is advocacy. In a, in a community of God's people, we must have special concern for those who are poor or marginalized, people that can't speak for themselves. God expects in his community of followers as a demonstration of his character, for those who can't speak for themselves to have other people speak for them. Those are five of the more than that elements of what it means for justice and righteousness in the Old Testament community. And then when you get to the New Testament, it disappears. You don't see that anymore. Well, actually, it's not true. And we've had a problem with translation. Um, and I don't know if it's so much translation as uh, what our understanding of words are. So we see Jesus preaching out, first of all, living out that expectation. This is who he is. He demonstrates who God is, justice and righteousness. And again, if we, if we lean into that word righteousness as moral superiority, yeah, we see that as applied to Jesus, but does the word really mean that? The original uh, Greek word that is constantly translated righteousness in more traditional translations, let's say, has the strong connotation of justice. It means both righteousness and justice. The concepts are not separated in the Greek language, which is the origin of the New Testament. It's, it's the Greek language. So Matthew 5, verse 6 is a very common, uh, it's, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the poor in spirit and all of that. And in 5, 6, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. A traditional translation would say God blesses those, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's the deal? Well, because the Greek word carries both connotations, and because we've understood righteousness to be a moral purity, we miss the sense that it's doing right. So I really like that the New, New Living Translation here has moved away from the word righteousness and justice, because that's the understanding of doing right. And they footnote it in there. If you look at the footnote, it's a or righteousness. Hunger and thirst for justice is a very different thing than hungering and thirsting for moral purity. Again, still part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus got put whole, two whole chapters in there. Matthew 6, 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all, all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. I, I grew up with... Uh, um, now my brain is, is turning off. Uh, seek the kingdom... Of, no. Seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. And I always read that as seek first... God's kingdom, his rule, and moral purity. And that's not what it's saying. God's kingdom is manifested in justice and doing right. Justice and doing right. And so Jesus goes to the cross, and we talked about this, to effect forgiveness, to bring about the possibility for a relationship with God, to establish a new agreement, a new covenant. He's confirmed as Messiah. He's proven right the word there would be justified, 
proven right by his resurrection, and the new covenant, the new agreement of God is lived out with a whole new community of people known as the people who are called out. What we call the church. We confuse that with building. It's not. It's a group of people. And how, how, what happens here? Um, you see in, in the book of Acts, Acts 1, they're meeting regularly. They're praying regularly. Acts 2, God pours out his Holy Spirit. They're identified by his Spirit now. Acts 3, if you remember the song from Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school, Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. And there's a lame man at the, at the gate of the temple who's been crippled for years and years and years and years. And he's begging because what else do you do in that culture? There's no social security. He's begging. Peter and John look at him, and he looks at them. He's thinking, I'm going to get some money. And Peter says, I don't have money, but what I do have, I'll give you. And, and he, he commands him to be healed in the name of Jesus, and he's healed. And what's the first thing he does? If you know the story, what's the first thing he does? He follows into the temple. Why? Because he's never been in there. Lame people are not allowed in the temple. We see Jesus doing miracles, and the miracle isn't always about a physical healing, it's also about inclusion into the family of God, ability to worship God. And so he goes in the temple, walking and jumping around saying, hey, look at me, I'm here. It's amazing. A few chapters later, we see a division, Acts 6. We have this whole community of people that are they're living communally, and there's no welfare there's no social security, so if you have people that um, have no means of support, they find their support in community. And these followers of Jesus are forming a new community, and many of the people are, are being kicked out of their local synagogues, which means you're being kicked out of the local community, and they're finding a new community. So people with no means of support, particularly widows, if they have no children, if they have no husband, you have no recourse, you have no support, and you're expected to be supported by a community. And what we see in Acts 6 is that there's a division where Jew... Um, the, the, the Jewish widows, or the, the, the ones that speak Aramaic, are being supported, but the ones that speak Greek are now being left to the side. They're saying, what is going on? We're part of this community, but we're not being supported. And, and without support, they will literally starve to death. And so the leaders of the church get together. They say, this isn't right. It's also not right that, that we avoid our ministry, what we do, what we're called to do in order to deal with this. So they appointed people to deal with it. Now, when you look at the people that they appointed, they appointed seven guys, still a very patriarchal culture. Uh, leaders tend to be male. And, but they all have Greek names. So what they didn't do is say, we're going to deal this problem by taking Jewish representatives to deal with a non-Jewish problem. They said, we're going to take representatives from among that community to make sure they're taken care of. Giving a voice to the voiceless. And one of those guys' names is Stephen. That issue happens in chapter 6. Stephen runs afoul of all the authorities, the Jewish authorities, and in, in chapter 7, they kill him. He's the first Christian martyr, but before they kill him, he, he delivers this brilliant sermon about how God no longer lives in a physical temple. He never did. It was never his intention. In Acts 3, we see the lame man getting to go into the temple, and Stephen delivers this sermon, and it's the first time you see this in the New Testament, although Jesus hints at it. They didn't seem to get that that it's not about a physical temple. It's about God's Holy Spirit identifying us, living within us. And he offends them so much they kill him. And one of the people that's standing by, watching him being killed, sort of presiding over it, his name is Paul. 
And Paul becomes a follower of Jesus, and he's the one that furthers that message that says the community of God is not defined by a location, it's not defined by a building, it's defined by Jesus. This is where we get the verse that we started the service with today, Galatians 3.28. This is Paul writing. He says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I want to read a quote. It's kind of long. It's from the British historian, theologian, uh, Tom Wright. He says this. And you think about what, what our motivations are for justice in today's cultural climate. He says this, the church was the original multicultural project with Jesus as its only point of identity. It was known and was for this reason seen as both attractive and dangerous as a worship-based, spiritually renewed, multi-ethnic, polychrome, mutually supportive, outward-facing, culturally creative, chastity-celebrating, socially responsible, responsible, fictive kinship group. Now that last bit, fictive kinship group, is, is, is a bit of a technical term saying, uh, we are choosing to define our family this way. It's, it doesn't mean it's fiction, it mean, means it's, it's created among us. Fictive kinship group, gender blind in leadership, generous to the poor, and courageous in speaking up for the voiceless. That's his definition of the early church. They had a high moral standard. If you are part of the church, this is what's expected to you. But they also lived it out in mercy. It's a community of justice and forgiveness. We talked about forgiveness in the past. It's absolutely necessary. Without judgment, there's no standard. And there's a high standard. But without mercy, there's no hope. And mercy is extended to each one of us. And so there's a community living out God's identity. What's his identity? Primarily love, that's lived out. It's demonstrated in justice and doing right. And the early church lived that out. In fact, long before this was even on our agenda, long before it became our justice concern, we see the church living out diversity, inclusion, and equality. They had one primary definer, that's Jesus. I am primarily defined by Jesus. I'm primarily defined by Jesus. I'm not, pri I'm not defined by being conservative, or being Canadian, or being white. No, I might be all these other things, and we don't lose that, but my primary definition is Jesus. We are not a political organization. We are not an ethnic organization. We're a Jesus organization. We're a Jesus community. And it's, this, is, this is who we are. Our primary defi definer is Jesus. It doesn't diminish the variety of, of humanity as God has created us. We have different opinions. We have different political bents. We have different ethnicities, different genders all kinds of differences that we can celebrate together in love because Jesus is our primary identity. It's who we are. That's the family that we are. Diversity, inclusiveness, and equity. So why, why are people yelling about that in our culture today? Well, because it disappeared, didn't it? What happened? How many people in our culture think of the church as diverse or inclusive? or equal. Over time, we've done something really wrong. 
The church was a minority movement. It was an underdog movement. And it took a couple of hundred years for the the leadership structure of the church to get some power. And when the church got some power, things started to go wrong. I mean, having power is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. When you have power, you can get stuff done. But when you start pursuing power, you get a taste of power over the love of Jesus, over the diverse, united family of God, you're going to see things go wrong. And there's always been a contingent. There's always been, the Bible might use the term remnant. There's, there, there's been a group of people that are faithful and living this out under sometimes oppressive evil structures. There's always been a faithful group of people continually living, living this out. But the church capital C, as it's known in the world, has done supreme damage to the reputation of God as just and doing right. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Maybe you've been part of a church. I know we have a bunch of people that have come here from other churches. I was really hurt. I was burnt in my church. And sometimes we bring that stuff on, but many, many times we don't. There's power at play that damages people. The church is known as an organization that tells other people what to do without living up to those same standards. God is a God who is just and he does right. And this is who we are called to be. Um, I, my phone is buzzed. I hope these questions aren't too hard. Um, how do we change our internal view of righteousness away from moral purity and towards justice when justice seems to look different for everyone? Politically, because politics are a big part of justice, each side appears to believe that their way is the way to achieve justice and that their way is biblically supported. Yeah, so there's, there's a problem. The problem is when you... When you, anytime you cave to the rule, the end justifies the means. That's when, watch out for that. The end justifies the means. I can compromise my standard of holiness here because there's a goal. The end justifies the means. Here's something that's challenging as, as followers of Jesus. The end doesn't justify the means. The means justifies the end. How you live how you are faithful to Jesus impacts your eternity. The means justifies the end. And so how do you deal with that? Well, first, don't be wedded to a political ideology. Absolutely not. Your primary identifier is Jesus. Your first approach when dealing with the politics, when dealing with the justice, if you're confused, pray. If you're confused, talk to other followers of Jesus, but keep Jesus the center of the conversation rather than political ideologies. And I think that might be enough to get you started. Uh, I could do a whole message on that. I won't. Um, I have a dream to share with all of us. Do we have time? The meaning aligns with the messages on justice. Um, yes, in a minute. Um, I just want to grab this mic off to the side here. Um, maybe you've been burnt in the world. Maybe you've been burnt in the church. Whatever your experience, Jesus wants relationship with each one of us. And if you've never stepped into that relationship, I want to give you the opportunity today. It's as simple as ABC. The A is admit your need for him. I need this. I need relationship with God for healing, for hope, for peace, for strength in an unjust world, for direction in how to live out justice. A, admit. B, believe. That's an expression of trust. 
I am trusting Jesus' path. I am trusting that Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection makes the way for me to have a relationship with God, a relationship that will manifest in justice and doing good in my life and me lived out for other people. And then see us commit. You can't live two lives at the same time. You can't keep using the old tools, the old mechanisms, the old instincts. We need to be totally renewed and transformed and commit our lives completely to Him. And if this is something you need to do today, and you need to do it, if you've never done it, just follow me in this prayer. Make these words yours. Even repeat them out loud if, if you can keep up. Pray something like this. Father in heaven, I admit my need for you. I thank you that you are just and you do right. I am choosing today to trust that Jesus' death and resurrection has made it possible for me to be in your family. And I'm choosing to commit my life completely to you today. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. Amen. And if this is a, a decision you are making today for the first time, please connect with us. Go to crosslands.live, click the Follow Jesus button, give us your contact info because we'll give you next steps. How do we live this out? How do we do this together in community? And we have tools. We have, we have things that are, you will find extremely helpful in doing this, but we need one another. We are called to live together as a community, not as, not as lone wolves or whatever. Uh, I'm going to invite Edna to come up and she has something to share that God has given her. Um, so as, as I share this with you, I just want you to uh, remember what Fred said earlier about the fact that the church is not this building. So I had a dream about three weeks ago and it keeps coming back. Um, so I was hoping it will go back and I didn't have to do this, but usually God doesn't work with me that way. So... The building was not just this building, but it was about five to ten stories tall, and there were different levels, um, and there were there were people around the building. So Fred and Maddie and Judah were on that corner, then Mariah and a group of other youth who I'm sorry, but I don't know your names were on this corner, then a group of women were on this corner with Pastor Claudette, and there were a group of men on that corner with Pastor Jordan and Pastor Wade. There were buses coming to this building, they were parking, and I couldn't see the people in the buses, but interestingly, I saw luggage with full of clothes that were wrinkled inside these buses. And then the, the luggage was being brought inside the building, and then we were uh, wrinkling out the clothes. So some of us in different areas were just basically ironing it out so that it will be straight and nice and ready to hand. So I said, what, what is this? And make it go away. <laughs> but it didn't. It kept coming. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit, who is an amazing counselor and friend and, and um, teacher to walk us through these kind of experiences, he said that we could all grab a luggage of injustice and that we could all help iron out the different parts that may represent injustice to us, that we don't need to do it all, 
and that we may not all need to focus on one portion of what Fred has been talking throughout every weekend. That we only need to grab a luggage and that we only need to grab a couple of fa- you know, clothes who are wrinkled out to just, in his, with his mercy and his grace and his direction in our life, to take those wrinkles out. Um, so because of the way that Fred's been talking today and the fact that I'm here today, I just wanted to share that all with you. And by all means, if you, if God or the Holy Spirit reveals other things to you about that message, um, just please share it with us. Um, whether you submit it to the office at Crossland, so whatever, because it's very important. As Claudette was saying earlier, for us, it's very important when we hear more, because God doesn't only speak to one person. So I'm not the only one having dreams. I know that 100%. Um, we all work together in this way of walking um, towards a better world and better justice um, as a family of believers. Thank you. Thanks, Edna. Next week, our message is going to close off the series, and we're actually going to talk about that. How do we live this out? It's one thing to demonstrate justice and, and living right within our community as a witness of God to the world. It's another thing to to further justice within the world. And I mentioned earlier in the series, there, human, humanity is infinitely creative in creating injustice. And there's infinite injustices to which we must respond or to which we might respond, but we can't. We have to understand where God is leading us in which particular areas we must respond to. God's character is revealed in his justice and his doing right. And this is our community mandate. We represent a God who loves humanity. And he's a God who is both just and righteous. He does right. And it's not enough for us to do nothing. It's not enough. Just like it wasn't for the Old Testament community, the expectation was you can't do nothing. You need to respond to injustice and address it. So we're called to make disciples, to do justice. We're called to do what's right. How do we do that? We're going to talk about that next week. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you that you are a good God. I thank you that you do love us. You love the world and you have called us into your family and you've called us into your mission. Father, I pray that you would make clear to us, each of us individually, what our role is to play, what our part is to play, and make clear to us as a community if there is um, what the things we are to do to address injustice in our community or even around the world. I pray that, Lord, your presence would go with us. I pray that your presence would be continually manifested wherever we go so that wherever we are, you are. Open our spiritual eyes to see what you want us to see. Open our spiritual ears to hear what you want us to hear. And make clear to us our specific mandates, our specific missions. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Crosslands Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or the Google Play Store so that it comes straight to your device. And to find out more about Crosslands Church, you can visit us at crosslands.ca. Join us next week for another message to help you experience the life with God you've been missing.